Welcome to the Empowering Tomorrow's Automotive Software Podcast, brought to you by ETOS, a single source of cutting-edge software and hardware solutions that make automotive embedded systems safe, smart, secure, and sustainable. Each episode, we'll be joined by ETOS and industry experts to discuss how electrification, automation, and connectivity are impacting the automotive industry. Now, sit back and enjoy the discussion. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of ETAS's Empowering Tomorrow's Automotive Software. I'm Eric Sessa, your host for today, and the President, General Manager of ETAS's operations in North and South America. And today I have a special guest, friend, somebody I've worked with for a long time now, Nigel Tracy, who is VP of ETAS's RTA Solutions globally. And maybe, Nigel, if you could give a quick intro on yourself welcome by the way <laughs> thanks eric no it's uh, it's great to be here so yeah let, let me give a quick introduction so as you said i'm responsible at etas for the rta solutions group the rta solutions group is the part of etas that does the embedded production platform software that empowers more than three billion uh, ecus on the road today um so career-wise at ETAS, I started off in software development. I've been at ETAS now for 20 years. Uh, I started as a software engineer, moved into uh, uh, product management, but I've always had a fascination for deeply embedded software that goes into devices you can uh, uh, you can touch and use. So uh, that's what's always, uh, uh, always driven me. So uh, RTA Solutions is a natural home for me. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you, you and I talk a lot about the current state of the industry and the direction and what the what the industry needs and i think both of us agree there's a lot of change happening right now and and um it's really it's a lot of fun to be in the middle of it but i think there's a lot of buzzwords going around sdv being one of them you know let's talk a little bit about what sdv means i mean to me we're talking about a couple of things the first being being able to you know rapidly respond to potential safety issues and then second and a big part of it for sure is enabling new business models through through software certainly i think interested in in your take on it and i think the audience would be as well so what what's your take on the whole sdv world right now yeah i think as you said uh, eric i mean i think uh, the automotive industry is in a in its biggest period of transition probably ever i mean the last time there was a similarly big transition would have been in the late 1990s when multiplex buses were first introduced and, and the control units of cars started to get connected and, and that drove the massive uh, growth of ecus that we see in the cars today now with this change coming with software-defined car, I think you captured it quite well. It's uh, it's obviously uh, about allowing software to define the functionality of the car and, and changing the landscape for the driver to uh, be much more like we're used to with other consumer electronic devices, our smartphones, our uh, IT equipment, where the day you get your device is basically the worst that device is ever going to be because it's constantly updated with new capabilities, features, and uh, through software, which is exactly the opposite to how we've experienced cars for the last uh, 100 years. Yeah, uh, right. Basically, the day you take them is the worst, uh, yeah. the best it's ever going to be because all it does yeah. from that point onwards is get uh, older. I think one of the interesting things in this transition is it's adding on top of what we have 
I think it's important to realize it's not changing what we have. We still need to build um, the same things into cars we do today to control the hydromechanical electrical system. So we still need the safe braking systems. We still need to manage the battery to power the engine. But what we're adding now is a connectivity and decision-making layer on top that enables a lot of capabilities that can be updated over the lifetime of the vehicle. So, so how does the, in your, in your mind, um, be obviously being an expert in this area, like how do you, how do you see software or maybe even the software architecture changing to, to enable, to enable that what the industry is, what the industry is moving towards? Yeah, so what I see and, and what I think we're moving towards is um, to add a kind of centralized or, or zonal based uh, layer on top of what exists in the car today. And of course, what exists in the car will adapt to that. There'll be some advantages to optimize it. But largely, we're talking about adding another layer into the architecture of the car to enable this centralized control, centralized decision making and connectivity to enable these kind of richer, more um, immersive, more personalized uh, features and capabilities in, uh, in, in the car to be realized in a way that's not possible if you've got to distribute that behavior across 10 ECUs in the car being developed probably right. by multiple different companies that it's too hard to coordinate there and consequently means you can't then update it over the lifetime. This centralized uh, approach that will get added I think gives that capability to uh, then bring in these features and constantly update them. The challenge, of course, will be to bring those two worlds together because we still in automotive will face the uh, challenges that the systems we build are highly safety critical and have very, very long product life cycles. And that's a challenge other industries didn't have to face as they moved to software driven. So the IT industry, I mean, the IT industry typically doesn't face 20 year life cycles. Um, yeah, yeah the, right. And nor the mobile phone industry. Yeah. And certainly the mobile phone's not killing anyone. So uh, safety is not right. anywhere like the same level of concern. So obviously being responsible for RTA solutions, you're in the middle of the, because I see the software the software is changing right but so will this will obviously require the tool chains that that support and and enable the software to be developed will change and how do you how do you see this where do you see the industry going here um i mean i think um as you're highlighting there the, the tools and the way we build the software will have to change to fit this new paradigm. So the challenge is you've got the kind of application mobile space where we're used to being able to develop and deploy software within minutes, hours, or maximum days. As you've got the embedded world of safety critical automotive cases where we're used to develop and deploy software where it takes months and months before you can make a software release. And bringing those two together is really uh, the challenge so that you can keep updating the vehicle. What we've already seen is that means more and more um, the software build process is moving to a CICD, a continuous development, continuous integration um, pipeline based approach, meaning that the interactive use of our tools uh, becomes an important part in the early development process. But as the software matures, it becomes a much lesser use case. Everything is running headless, not interactive um, in a cloud based build environment uh, so that you can. Uh, build and deploy and test the software much more automatically and much more frequently. 
So from your experience with dealing with customers, I mean, what sort of software turn times are they looking for? So you mentioned like in today's world, let's say today's world being the past decade, we've been on a pretty, pretty lengthy development cycle, right? And I think what you're, what we're talking about is an order of magnitude shorter development cycle. What do you see as the expectations from the customer here? So first, exactly that customers are expecting things to be more automated, less interactive, um, and go faster. Um, So for us, what that does mean uh, is to move all of our configuration and code generation tools that are part of our platform software to move them to headless versions that can run from the command line, that can run under Linux, not just interactively on a Windows PC, so that they can be put in these build pipelines. And that's helping then customers speed things up. What's also important is I think you need some architectural support as well, though, because actually you don't want the safety stuff to go fast. You don't want to uh, release stuff that people's lives depend um, several times an hour or several times a day. You want to know that stuff's really safe. Therefore, architecturally, you need the ability to go fast in a certain domain with knowing that it's not going to impact the safety uh, of the overall system. And that's where topics like uh, mechanisms to um, uh, guard against safety, uh, to put in uh, uh, plausibility checks or safety checks, Um, so that the functional world can go very fast, knowing that it can't have safety consequences, is also another element that needs to come together, I feel, uh, to enable this transition. Because although it might be nice in theory to say we should update all of the software uh, multiple times every hour, I don't truly believe that's realistic when it comes to software that people's lives depend on. I think safety always requires a thoughtful, process-driven approach to make sure we got it right. Yeah, agreed. What sort of changes do you think that drives in the overall architecture of the software? So, I, I mean, obviously, then we're we're talking about middleware and let's say layers of software that separate the safety critical safety critical pieces of of code from, you know, allowing an app to function and be updated, you know, like you said, multiple times an hour or multiple times a day, depending on the situation. Yeah, so what what we're seeing is that there, um, you're very likely to need two different uh, kinds of platform software or middleware to support those two different worlds. So in the safety critical, um, hard real time, you're driving the real hardware. So you're interacting with hydromechanical systems you need a kind of middleware that we've had for the last 15 years with Autosar Classic. Something that is very statically configured, very predictable, um, low in resource usage, so you can hit the real-time requirements that, uh, uh, that you have in such systems. But as a consequence, those systems are hard to um, uh, change freely uh, and rapidly. So consequently, uh, you see the Autosar committee um, introduced uh, an additional standard, the Autosar Adaptive Standard, to have something that is much more designed to support uh, dynamic software, something that is all set up and programmed via its APIs and can be developed more effectively and more efficiently in terms of turnaround times. And I think what uh, you see is you need to have those different kinds of middleware for those different domains in the architecture. Um, And then the important thing is how do you bring them together to make sure a possible failure, uh, a possible bug, 
in um, the adaptive domain can't spill over and cause a safety impact uh, for the vehicle by causing some problems in the uh, uh, classic domain. So I think that's the trick is how to bring those two worlds together. And, and that's the challenge that we still need to work through. So, so you mentioned you mentioned adaptive. It seems like adaptive is following a similar path to to classic, where there's maybe I would say slow adoption, and then it t it took maybe a decade, right, for people to get on the adaptive class. I mean, the Autostar Classic train, and it seems some we're following maybe a similar approach with with adaptive. But I mean, what what's your what do you think? I mean having been around in this area for so long i have to say it does feel kind of familiar and, and very similar yeah, right. um, i mean we uh, the benefit of 2020 hindsight will tell us in a few years time but right now it feels like autosar classic did so at the very beginning when the industry came together to define autosar classic there was bold ambitions to define a spec to have solutions created that meet that spec and that they would be on the road in production within a few years but realistically, it took until version 3.2 or version 4 of the specifications until anyone really put it in um, vehicles and put those vehicles on the road in, in any meaningful way. And Adaptive is definitely following a similar profile. So it's been worked on the last several years, but really it's not widely deployed on the road yet. But probably right. we're on the cusp of that introducing the version three, the version four of the specifications that will probably be the tipping point. And, and then we start to see the adoption coming in, in 25, 26, I would say. So go back a couple of years, everyone was predicting to be in production with Autosar Adaptive uh, this year and next year. In reality, we're a couple of years behind that, I would say. Uh, but I would say it's definitely too early to say it's not going to succeed um, because we learned that lesson with Autosar Classic. <laughs> right, can right. we guarantee it will succeed? Well, we need a couple of years, then we can look back and say. <laughs> yeah, we. I I think people got caught in the when Classic rapidly became real. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of people at exactly that point were thinking, oh, it's not going to make it. It's going to die. Yeah, as a standard. Right, exactly. And then within 18 months, it was everywhere. And, everyone yeah, and you had it. to have a solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's where we are with, uh, with adaptive right now. Now, obviously, in the adaptive space, there are also um, um, other approaches, other solutions. I mean, adaptive is... Uh, much more typical of higher end middlewares that you would see based on C++ and, and uh, more dynamic programming environments. So there are maybe more alternatives out there than there were in the classic domain. But still, whatever you build there has to connect to the rest of the vehicle. It needs to support diagnostics. It needs to get its data from the rest of the car. That's something that Autosar Adaptive definitely has a, an attractive solution for. So. Even if it, uh, the scope of Autosar Adaptive changes in future, I believe um, elements of it are mandatory anyway, because uh, you still yeah, need to get right. the signals out of the rest of the car, and they are all going to be in an Autosar Classic environment. Yeah. So I want to I wanted to focus a little bit with you on tools, and so we talked a little bit about a couple of minutes ago. You talked a little bit about um, CI/CD pipelines. How much of the development do you see moving to the cloud and how much 
what tools or how do the tools that we have today need to change and adapt to facilitate this? What we've already been doing for the last uh, it's probably 18 months, maybe even two years already, is for uh, us having to create Linux versions of our tools that can run in a non-interactive environment, because that's exactly what you need if you want to put the whole build process um, in, into the cloud. The yeah. second thing that there's been a lot of demand on uh, and interest around is, Obviously, you don't just want to build software. Um, you need to test it. You need to, when you make changes, you need to know that the software is still uh, functioning correctly, and therefore, having virtual ECUs or um, versions of our platform software that are capable to run in the cloud without the real hardware. So simulating uh, either the hardware behavior or virtualizing it so that uh, you can run. Um, a certain amount of your testing then automatically in the cloud. They've been the other areas where there's been strong demands um, uh, the last couple of years uh, to make this change to moving the build process away from someone sitting in front of a PC with a keyboard to something that's automatically triggered every time any developer checks in some code into the uh, source code repository. Yeah, right. I mean, I think we certainly see our ROE customers starting to, as part of the quotation process or um, yeah, their requirements are coming from the OEs to, to not only supply development hardware, but also virtual ECUs as part of their delivery package to the, to the OE. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what's important to understand here or have clear is that a virtual ECU is not equal to a virtual ECU. There are many different right. kinds and it depends on the properties that you want to test what you need to enable that. So if you simply want to test communication um, uh, with, with signals coming arriving in, in on a network interface, then you only need to virtualize um, the microcontroller abstraction layer of the Autosar Classic stack and have some way to stimulate it with virtual CAN frames and other virtual network frames. But if what you want to test is the real-time behavior of the system, well, then you need maybe a complete simulation of the processor itself. So you've got yeah. two ends of the spectrum where you're just looking at functionality uh, to your testing performance and hardware interaction. And each of those need very different solutions. Um, and they're very different solutions because actually their complexity and also their performance is radically different. So something that's doing a lightweight virtualization can run maybe an order of magnitude faster than real time. Yeah, so you can do yeah, tests right. very rapidly. But if you want to simulate hardware effects, it's probably running an order of magnitude slower than real time. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I mean, there, there's there's huge benefits even to, I mean, just think about where where you, you start to put all the, the, the the OEMs, the OEMs start to put together their, you know, put the, their system together. Most, most of the integration issues are around communication. So just being able to virtualize the communication of the whole system has a huge impact on, let's say, uh, quickening, the, <laughs> quickening the integration process. I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of the complexity for the OEMs is uh, is all about integration. And uh, of course, there are some complexities around the end-to-end real-time behavior uh, and performance, but by far the majority of the kind of issues that you're finding 
especially in the early phases of integration, are just simply misunderstandings um, yeah, of the communication. Right. So one of the ECUs thinks this is vehicle speed in miles an hour with a uh, resolution down to uh, um, the nearest half a mile an hour, and another ECU thinks it's in kilometers an hour to the nearest tenth of a kilometer an hour. And they're exchanging that data and, and not realizing that they have a different understanding of the physical uh, quantity of the signal. Those are the kind of things for which you only need the signal exchange to be simulated. But these are things that are easily done in the virtual space. Absolutely. The, these are things that you should never get to hardware before you find these problems because yeah, hardware right, is exactly. complex to set up to find these kind of basic problems. Well, Nigel, um, I always enjoy chatting with you, but any any words of wisdom for that for the audience on on tools and the, and how the tools will be changing to support the the needs of the industry to to enable the new business models of the software defined vehicle i mean i think i think as we've discussed one of the biggest changes that we're seeing is everything that is an interactive tool today probably needs an offline um, headless version of it that can be put in some kind of automation framework. Yeah. Um, so that is starting to become a base requirement for uh, um, uh, for all of the tools that are involved in, in getting to the production software. There's then also a, a, another class of tools that, that we haven't touched on so far, which is how do you bridge the car to the cloud? Um, and, and that brings in another uh, another set of tools and, and deployment uh, complexities as well. Um, maybe that's a, a topic for another day, but I think you don't get to the software-defined vehicle until you solve that three-step process. You've got to get from the deeply embedded space to this new layer that is enabling frequent software updates and delivery of new functionality in the vehicle. And you've got a bridge between the vehicle and uh, functions that can be deployed um, in back-end infrastructure on the, on the internet. Um, and, and there's a whole additional class of tools um, to take care of there as well. Yeah, you, you're, you're talking about the next generation of over-the-air yes, updates. Over the air updates and even distributed functionality. So, I mean, yeah. to give one very quick concrete example here, uh, at the minute we all have maps and navigation systems in our cars. Cars are very good sensors. You could easily, with some back end services connected to the deeply embedded ABS system in the car, create a friction map of the world, which would make driving much safer because then you would know what is a safe speed to take each corner because if when a car is driving around that corner the abs system notice there's some ice and the wheels are slipping that can go up to the cloud and update a friction map that can be available to all the other vehicles on the road yeah uh, in, and that's the kind time, of thing not possible to do without that end-to-end -end yeah. from the deeply embedded to the back-end infrastructure yeah yeah the the, the possibilities are are endless almost I, yeah I absolutely think. absolutely i think uh, i think as we found in the mobile space with uh, the app ecosystems actually we can't yet imagine what would be possible because we yeah, must just right. need to unlock it and then creativity takes off and uh, who knew we needed all these apps for our phones 20 years ago <laughs> right i thought i just wanted to make a phone call <laughs> <laughs> which is the only thing you don't do on your phone now right yeah i know <laughs> Uh, well, great, Nigel. Thanks for the thanks for the time. Um, thanks for thanks to to everybody for listening and uh, tune in tune in next time and maybe we'll 
maybe we'll be talking about over-the-air updates or something like that. There's a lot of interesting topics. Great. Thanks. My pleasure, Eric. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Thank you for joining this episode of the Empowering Tomorrow's Automotive Software Podcast. Please leave a comment or review with your feedback or what you'd like to hear in future episodes. To learn more about automotive embedded systems and ETAS's capabilities, visit our website at ETAS. That's E-T-A-S dot com.